Good morning. Uh, as he said, my name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. And as he said, we are in a series uh, in the Gospel of Luke. So the Bible is uh, broken into a couple of categories. So the Old Testament is the part of the Bible that, that is before Jesus comes. And then there are four Gospels that really highlight and focus in on the life and the teachings and the ministry of Jesus. And then uh, the New Testament letters that come after that are letters written in light of Jesus' teaching, ministry, um, etc. And so here's what I want to, to do today, though. Luke being one of those. Here's what I want to do today. I, I want to introduce a new phrase into Sojourn Heights. I want to introduce a new phrase into our communal language as a church. Uh, this word is not new. Uh, it's just new to us. Some of you may have heard it before. And what I want to do is I want to introduce uh, this new phrase in light of the parable that Jesus teaches, in light of the story that we are going to sit under uh, today. And so what is this new phrase? I will tell you that at the end. For now, I enjoy that a lot more than y'all do, for the record. For now, I want to ask a question. If I asked you this, what is the central message of Jesus' teaching? What is the, the central driving theme or thrust of Jesus' teaching? Uh, I'm, I'm guessing some of the answers would go like this. Money, sex, forgiveness, grace, love, all topics that Jesus taught on. But would it surprise you to find out that the central theme, the driving thrust of Jesus' teaching is none of those, but it is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Would it surprise you to find out that that is a central theme in Jesus' teaching? Now, some places, uh, when Jesus teaches on the kingdom of God, he's simply explaining what it is, just, just sort of here's what it is. But a lot of places, he's teaching on the ethical implications for life inside that kingdom, teaching on what life looks like as a member of Jesus' kingdom, what it looks like to serve the poor and the marginalized to work for justice for everyone. Sometimes he is teaching on the ethical implications, but why? Why? Because it is an unjust, cruel, and unfair world that we live in. It is a broken world that we live in, and Jesus wants his followers to work for the justice of all humanity, the just treatment of all people. You see, um, exploitation has been uh, a present reality in humanity almost from the word go. Injustice has been a present reality in humanity almost from the word go. And when Jesus teaches on the ethical implications, he says, here's how I want my people to live in the world, to work for the just world that I am going to come and restore one day. That's why we partner with organizations like Houston Welcomes Refugees. But there are some places where Jesus is teaching on the kingdom of God, knowing the unjust world that we live in, where he is simply trying to encourage his people, where he is trying to offer a bit of encouragement in light of the world that we live in. This is one of those texts. This is one of those texts where Jesus is offering encouragement to his people because, listen, Jesus did not show up with an imaginary message for an imaginary world. He showed up with a profound message for a real world. And so we are going to look at the story that Jesus tells, what it has to say about life in the kingdom of God and life in this real world 
and see how it help, might help us define this new phrase. But first, we need to set some context before we get to uh, chapter 18. We need to start back, uh, chapter 17, verse 20. And here's the scene. Here's the setting that leads into the parable. It goes like this. Being asked by the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders of the day, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, Jesus, answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So these Pharisees, these, these, these religious leaders, they're with Jesus and they say, hey, when is the kingdom of God going to come? When's it going to come? Now, these um, Pharisees, when they thought kingdom of God, they thought military might, political reign. They, they thought, when are we going to get out from under Rome's thumb? When is Rome going to lift the thumb off of us and we are no longer going to be the objects of injustice or oppression? So they thought social, political power. For them, the kingdom of God meant an end to suffering, an end to them being the recipients of injustice and unjust treatment. When are we going to get out from under Rome's unethical and evil thumb? That's what they would have thought. When are we no longer going to have a Caesar that we are subject to? But Jesus answers it by saying, listen, the kingdom of God, where is it? It's in the midst of you. It's here. It's among you. His point being, I am the king, and where the king is, the kingdom is. So when we trace the, the Bible about the kingdom of God, this is what we see. The kingdom of God, it was promised in the Old Testament, established by Jesus, expands through the church, and then is consummated when Jesus returns, which is why when you ask, where is the kingdom of God t today? The kingdom of God today is where the king reigns. Where the king reigns is the kingdom. The king reigns over the hearts of his people. He reigns over the church. Thus, the kingdom of God is the church today. But what will life in that church, life in God's kingdom be like? Will it be life free of injustice, free of suffering, free of heartache, where there are no more tears? We all already know the answer to that, but I'm going to keep reading anyway. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, but first he, he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so he turns to his disciples. He goes from the Pharisees now to the disciples. And he says, listen, there's going to be a day when you desire to see another day. There's going to be a day when you desire a future day when the Son of Man returns. Why? Why would Jesus say there's going to be a day when you're going to desire to see that day? Because he knows that life is going to get unbearable. Life is difficult and it gets worse. He knows that. He knows it. He knows life is going to be hard for these disciples. He knows that coming into my kingdom does not equal your easiest life now. That's not how this works. Jesus knows it, and he says, hey, listen, you're going to long for the day of the Son of Man. What's he talking about? Um, Son of Man is a reference back from Daniel 7, Daniel 7, that says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, listen, there's going to be a day when you're going to look forward to a day when the Ancient of Days or when the Son of Man will come and he will put all the nations in subject to his rule and to his reign. There's going to be a day when all that is sad is no longer true and all that is wrong becomes right. But here's the deal. Disciples, in your lifetime, what is sad is still going to be true. And listen, disciples, you are going to cry real tears. There are real tears from real heartache and real pain that is going to be a present reality in your life, disciples. We are going to talk about one of those in a few minutes. And Jesus is saying, injustice will still be a present reality. You will still have heartache. You will still cry. And listen to me, you will not be exempt from it. You will not be exempt from it. Now listen, this day that you're going to long to see, it's a real day. There is a real day to come when I will return. The Son of Man will put all things right. All the nations will be subject to my rule and my reign, and there will be no more injustice. But that day is not today, and there is a path that we have to walk down first, which is why he said, but first, first I have to suffer and be rejected. That day is coming. That day is coming, but it's not first. First is I have to suffer and be rejected. You see, here's the pattern in the Bible. Here's the pattern in Jesus' life. It's the pattern in Jesus' teaching, and it's the pattern in the Bible. Here it goes. Cross before crown. Cross before crown. And we are not exempt. You and I are not exempt. The pattern in our life is this cross before crown. It's why we don't do fair in our home. It's why with our four kids, we don't do fair. Just because we buy something for one kid doesn't mean we buy the same for the other. If one of our kids comes up to us and says, um, you know, hey, they got candy. Uh, I want candy. Can I have a piece? And if I say no and they say, well, daddy, that's not fair. I say, we don't do fair in our home. We don't do fair in our home because we want to train them for life in the real world. We don't want to train them for life in an imaginary world. That's what grandparents are for. <laughs> Sometimes I just enjoy saying no. That's my confession to you. But our job is not to raise our kids and to train our kids for life in an imaginary world. We want to train them for life in the real world. Life in the unfair, unjust world. Life in the kingdom of God as it is, not as it will be one day. The story of their life, of our kids' lives, is going to be this, cross before crown. It's the story of Jesus' life, cross before crown. And so Jesus, knowing this, knowing life is going to get hard, tells a story. And right up front, he tells you why. So let's look at it, verse 1, chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect, or for the purpose of, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Jesus told them this parable for a reason. In the middle of what's to come, in the middle of, 
um, all that is about to come your way, here's what I want from you, my disciples. I don't want you uh, to lose heart, and I want you to pray. I want you to pray. I want your first response always to be prayer. Now listen, I need to give a caveat here, because it's not the only response to injustice. The Bible has more to say about how we're to engage in bringing about the shalom that we are to work for than only praying, but the first response is always prayer. But then he says, I don't want you to lose heart. That word lose heart is I don't want you to be discouraged or to lack courage. If I could say it positively, he's saying pray and be courageous. I want you to pray and to have courage. Let's keep uh, reading. We're going to come back to those two in a minute. And he said, in a certain city, this is the story, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And the way that Jesus opens this parable, opens this story, he tells us something about the nature of injustice. Like many of Jesus' parables and stories, these are representative figures. The judge represents someone or a group of people. The widow does as well. The judge represents those who would pervert justice. That phrase, um, neither feared God nor respected man, that, that was a a uh, common Roman proverbial line or echoing a common Roman proverb for those who are thoroughly wicked. And so he is saying that there is real injustice in this world. There is real evil in this world. There is real darkness in this world. And sometimes, sometimes, the injustice comes from those who are meant to protect you. You see, the role of the judge is to be one who preserves justice. But in this story, he's an agent of injustice. You see, here's what would have uh, commonly been recognized. Well, it's not explicit in the story. The story uh, reflects what would have been a common reality in this first century world where um, widows were easily exploited. Um, they were vulnerable. Uh, they, they could be economically exploited um, easily. And then the person exploiting them would go and bribe the judge. And so I can exploit her out of $10 and pay him five. It's a net win for me. It's a net win for me. And so this judge, this judge who is meant to be someone who preserves justice for all, is the agent of injustice in a story like this. But then there's the widow. The widow, she represents the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. One commentator put it like this. In the scriptures of Israel and Jewish tradition, widowhood symbolized the ultimate state of vulnerability, status, deprivation, and need. You see, Jesus' point is that injustice happens to the vulnerable. So here's a powerful principle that Jesus is teaching about the nature of injustice, that most often, this is the way it works, it's the powerful taking advantage of the powerless. It's those who are meant to protect, those who are in charge, taking advantage of those who lack power. He is saying, expect even those who are supposed to protect the vulnerable, to take advantage of the vulnerable. And listen, disciples, expect the vulnerable to include you. Expect it to include you. This is Jesus teaching on life in the real world. But let's keep going on in the story and see how the widow responds. Verse 4. For a while he refused, the judge. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice 
so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So she hounds him. She hounds the judge. Now, here's the assumption. The assumption is that she didn't have the money to pay off the person who was trying to exploit her. And so hounding the judge is simply her only option. And so she hounds and she hounds and she hounds and eventually the judge gives in. And here's what Jesus is doing. He is setting up an if-then statement. If this, then that. He's saying if, if in a world like this, if in a world where the powerful take advantage of the powerless, where the strong exploit the vulnerable, if in that world even this judge is willing to make something right, then. Now let's keep reading. Verse 6, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So if if even this judge, even this wicked judge, even this judge who does not care about the widow is willing to give her justice, then how much more God? Then how much more God who is not the wicked judge, but who cares about his children? How much more God? How much more willing is God, therefore, to engage all that is sad and broken and painful in your life? How much more willing is he to make those things untrue? How much more, God? And listen, I know, and Jesus knows, he knows that there are times in our lives where we, where we feel like the widow in the story. The widow who is daily crying out to the judge who's not listening. Daily crying out to the God who we're praying and pleading, and it just seems as if there is no answer, and that God comes off more like the judge who does not care. Jesus knows. And so did you see where he began? Did you see how Luke started this little turn where it says, and the Lord? He doesn't call Jesus by his name. He calls him Lord. Lord, a title that would have been politically taken by Caesar calls him Lord. And here's the picture we get in the life and the ministry and the teachings of Jesus. Here's the picture of cross before crown we get in him. Here's what happened on the cross. On the cross, the Lord became the vulnerable one. On the cross, the Lord became the widow. On the cross, he laid himself bare. He became the vulnerable one. You see, Jesus is no Caesar, a king for whom subjects suffer and die, and he lives remotely and distant and does not care. Jesus is the king who cares enough to enter in and suffer with us. We don't have all the answers. We don't have all the answers to the whys, but we do know this. God is not distant. He does not, not care. He cares enough to have entered in and to suffer with us. Jesus is the king who became a widow on the cross, and because he did, he secured a crown for us one day. When he says that he will give justice to his elect, he is saying the world as it is is not the world as it will always be. He's saying, I came and I suffered injustice so that you eternally don't have to. There will be a day where injustice and heartache and pain and tears are brought to their rightful end, Jesus is saying. But that day is not today. A day is not today. And so he closes with a question. A question that's going to take us to our phrase, the phrase that I know you have been on the edge of your seat waiting for. He finishes like this. He says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
When I return as the Son of Man and all the nations become subject to my rule and my reign, when you no longer have to pray on earth as it is in heaven, because heaven and earth will meet on that day, will I find faith on the earth? Now, what is he asking? To understand what he's asking, we need to know what the Jews would have expected about the future. So here's what they would have expected. They would have expected, one, that there would be a day where God would judge the world. They would have expected, two, that before that day, there would be a period of intense suffering. And then three, they would have expected that suffering to lead to apostasy, to to some abandoning God in the face of suffering. And so what Jesus is not saying is, when I return as a son of man, will I find just generic faith on the earth? Like, will somebody believe in something somewhere? That's not what he's asking. What he's asking is, when I return as a son of man, will I find you faithful? My disciples, listen, when the suffering comes, are you going to be like the ones who abandon God, or will I come back and find you faithful? Will you trust me no matter how hard it gets, because it's going to get hard. Life is hard, and it gets harder. Will you be found faithful? Will you be faithful to the end? Which brings us to our phrase. What is our phrase in light of Jesus' question? Will you be found faithful to the end? Here it is. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism because in remembering your baptism, you are remembering that God has pledged himself to you. God has promised to you to love you and to be faithful to the end. Now be faithful to him. You're remembering that God gave you a sign of his love and affection, and steadfast faithfulness to you. Now you be found faithful to Him. You be faithful to Him. What does that look like? What does that look like to be found faithful? It looks like going back to verse 1. Pray, have courage. Pray. Listen, when life gets hard and life is going to get hard, when you are the object of what is unfair and not right and wrong in the world, let your first response be prayer. Listen, Don't just shake your fist. Bend your knee. Look, we have all been there where we just wanted to shake our fist at God. All of us, myself included. And in that day, when you do, listen, shaking your fist feels good. It feels like, ah, I got it off my chest. And it lasts for like a minute. Now listen, shaking your fist is not the same as just being honest in your pain. But don't just stand there and rail against God. Bend your knee and plead with Him. And then have courage. Be courageous. Let Jesus' words, I will be with you to the end of the age, create courage. This thread throughout the Old Testament. God is with you. Be courageous. Have courage. God is with you. Have courage. God is with you. Remember your baptism, meaning remember that God has pledged His faithfulness to you. And so, Isabella and Abigail and Isley and Easton, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. From this day forward, remember your baptism. There will be days when life gets hard. Life will not always be easy. It will not always be candy and fun. 
Remember that God has promised Himself to you, that He has pledged to be faithful to you to the end. There will be days when you feel lonely and left out, but remember that in Jesus' family you are wanted and you are included. Remember your baptism. Remember that today in your baptism God has promised to love you and to be faithful to you. Be faithful to Him. And to all of us who experience the waters of baptism, God has promised to love you and to be faithful to you to the end. You be faithful to Him. You be faithful to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You that whether we were baptized at two months, ten years, twenty years, fifty years, that we can look back and remember that You have made a promise to us to be our God, that You have promised to be faithful to us, and that You have promised to be faithful to us to the end. Would we be faithful to You? We know that remaining steadfast and faithful to You is a work of Your grace, and so we need it. We don't just need it today. We need it every day for the rest of our lives. Would You give us that sustaining grace and hold us tight to the end as we hold on to You? We pray specifically for these four, that they would know that You love them, that they are Your cherished children and that you are with them, and that you are for them, and that you will be with them to the end of their life, would they be faithful just as many days. And so we ask for that sustaining grace over them, the same sustaining grace that we need. And we pray this to the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Amen.